Diversity in Action podcast, presented by the BLX Internship Program. Join us as our hosts, Emlyn Miles Mattingly and Louise Rosa, interview guests from across the financial planning field to highlight the real change that's happening in our industry. If you're tired of just talking about diversity and want to learn about what's really being done to make the demographics of our profession more closely match the population of this country, this podcast is for you. This episode is brought to you by NAPFA. Since 1983, NAPFA has provided fee-only financial planners across the country with some of the highest standards possible for professional competency, comprehensive financial planning, and fee-only compensation. With more than 4,400 members across the country, NAPFA is the leading professional association in the United States dedicated to the advancement of fee-only financial planning. For more information, visit napfa.org. Welcome back to the Diversity in Action podcast. I am your co-host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, along with... Louis Rosa. Welcome, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that first episode we had. We have a star-studded lineup for you of people coming in that have made tremendous impact in the industry, and hope you are enjoying that. So with that, we're going to jump right into this episode of Diversity in Action. And it is exactly what it sounds like. We are talking about not just talking about a diversity, but talking about what it looks like when it's in action. And so today I'm going to pass it back to Luis. Thank you, Emily. Yes, today our guest is a career association executive with broad experience across multiple industries and professions. Currently the CEO of NAFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors for nine years and has been an amazing advocate and supporter of the BLX internship programs who are honored to have with us today. Jeff Brown, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you're doing for the profession. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, definitely want to take this time to thank you very much for your support because you guys immediately jumped on board as soon as we mentioned this program. We're like, what can we do? How can we get the word out? So it wouldn't have been the success it is today without your backing and support. So we are eternally grateful for that. So if you ever need help moving or something, you know, feel, feel yeah. free to reach out. <laughs> We're all adults now. Yeah. Friends are nice to help them move. Yeah. Don't think of the badge, right? Pay me in pizza, right? Remember those days? We're oh, yeah. having a barbecue and then you get there and they say, well, where's the food at? Oh, it's after we move. After we move. Yeah. Because <laughs> otherwise, yeah, then you get too, uh, too lazy and won't be able to move the couch. So Jeff, yeah, before we get into what your organization is doing and everything, like if you could tell us a little bit about your career path, how you got started and how you got to where you are today so that we can share that with the audience. Yeah, I kind of fell into it by accident. I was 22 years old, senior at University of Maryland, knew I wasn't ready to go to graduate school or anything like that. And so I just started looking around and I found my first association job. It was with a trade association for men's fraternities based in Indianapolis. So I packed up from the DC area, 22 years old, black man moving to Indianapolis. So it was a little bit of a culture shock. Yeah, um, but that, was my, <laughs> that was my first entry point into the association world. And from there, I just kind of worked my way around, learned the different facets of our business. So I worked in membership, worked in education, worked in governance a little bit. And then at one point in time, I had a boss who said, you can't stay here forever. So you should probably start thinking about your next move. And I think that was his gentle way of saying, I think you've outgrown this organization. (laughs) And so I moved to Chicago in 2006 and took a job with an association management company. And it was a great opportunity for me because I thought I was, I thought I knew it all. And I landed in the world's largest association management company. 
working in a technology business unit and it just showed me everything I didn't know about running not-for-profit trade associations and membership groups. And from there, it just kind of jumpstarted, moved really, really fast. But there's one thing that really stands out to me that really helped my career development. And so we have an association for association professionals here in Chicago. And they have a workforce diversity scholarship program. And in 2010, someone nominated me to be a part of that process. And you were connected with a mentor. My mentor just happened to be the CEO of a very large trade association here in Chicago that's got global reach. And I'm telling you, that's the experience that really put me on the path to getting where I am today. That individual just showed me everything that I needed to know about being an association CEO, opened a lot of doors for me, introduced me to the right people. Every time to this day that I have a question about something that I'm struggling with professionally, even though he's retired, he still answers my call. And so that's really one of the things that's always stuck with me about the work that we do, that we have to provide opportunities to allow professionals to mentor other professionals, because that's really how you're going to open doors and start moving, making moves. Absolutely. It's well, so important to have a mentor. And that's one of the things that we have had as one of the values at the BLX internship program is being able to not only provide the access, but also the continuity, right? So not just like, hey, you're in the door, because then now what? Like you said, there's so many things you don't know that you don't know right? until you're in there. And having somebody that could at least guide you along the way, help you avoid some mistakes and serve as a sounding board is just invaluable in this industry. I can't agree more. He was the one when the search consultant called me about the NAPFA job and I said no. He said, what are you doing? <laughs> Why would you say no? to an opportunity like this. He's like, look at it objectively on paper. This is an industry that's growing. You've had a conversation with the members. They have a professional ethos that aligns with your values. You need to move forward with this search. So you all can credit him with nine years ago, me taking the leaf and coming over to Napa. <laughs> nice. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, first of all, congratulations. I know Napa is up for a Wealthies Award, right? That's the uh, wealthmanagement.com awards for some of the diversity and inclusion initiatives that you're doing. So yeah, tell us about some of those. Yeah, I mean, we were very fortunate. One of the things that was apparent to me from day one was that we had a lot of opportunity when it came to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've been around a lot of professions, a lot of industries. I'm used to counting on fingers, uh, the number of people that look like me when I walked into a room. <laughs> and I wasn't surprised, but I also knew that I couldn't be the only one that was going to be the champion of that. So we were pretty fortunate back in 2017, we had a couple of members that said, you know, we've been in and around this association for a few years, we think it's time. And I was like, you know what, I think it's time too. <laughs> so we had good partners from the professional ranks that were really willing to partner with us to make sure that we were intentional about how we were approaching diversity, equity and inclusion. They didn't want to move very quickly. They wanted to make sure that we were deliberate and that we were doing the research and the homework to make sure that we were setting ourselves up for success. So we started in 2018. When I look around the association landscape, a lot of my peers really didn't start their DEI work until the summer of 2020. And we all know what was going on then. Kind of reactive. It made sense. But it meant that we had the time and the space to really take risks. We weren't doing it under the threat of a crisis. And I think that's what's contributed to the work that we've been able to do. So we've done everything from fun professional scholarships for people to attend NAPA conferences. We've done things like give scholarships for 
CFP review courses, embraced content at NAPFOOT events. Uh, we've done content in our monthly magazine. And I really think that our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative is at a point of maturity that over the last two years, we've been focusing on not what we're going to produce, but how do we arm NAPFOOT members with the tools that they need to be successful in their own DEI journeys. So in 2020, late in the year, we launched our DEI toolkit. And that was really focused on these ideas of like, how can firms start creating their own culture of success around DEI. So what do they need to do in terms of the people and the systems that are internal to their organizations to be able to move the needle? This past year, we just launched our DEI certificate and training program. I was very pleased with how that came out. It started as an idea on paper back late in 2021. And then we were able to get some solid professionals. And Luis was one of those individuals that helped us bring that to life. We launched our inaugural cohort this spring, brought 23 professionals to our conference in Atlanta. And that's the program that was nominated for a wealthy award. And I'm pleased to share that we are a finalist. There's two industry association initiatives that are being considered this year. One of them's in the annuity space. We won't say anything about that. Um, (laughs) This is something that I think as an industry, we're not competing. I don't care where you work, how you serve your clients, what you do. We all have an opportunity to make a difference when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Without a doubt. 100% agree. And with all the work that you're doing and the stuff that we started long before most people had started it, I just wanted to hear what diversity means to you. Because it obviously means a lot because we can see the work that's going on. But just hearing from you, what does it mean to you? And why is it important? Yeah, it's about the things you see and the things that you don't see. It's about having members and people that come into contact with this association, being able to show up and be their authentic selves. So we're not going to limit ourselves to race and ethnicity, gender, gender identity. It's so much broader than that. We just want to make sure that we have a welcoming community where you can show up and you can be you. And so for us, it's just about investing the time and the energy where people feel safe, valued, respected, welcomed, and celebrated. And you know, I love that you say that because that includes white people. People laugh when they say this. (laughs) Because I feel like sometimes when people think diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I'm going by the fact that every time I'm invited, well, most of the time that I've been invited to diversity, equity, and inclusion panel, it's usually been composed of only minority people. (laughs) And I'm like, well, we all in this together. So when I was doing that module on inclusion for the the NAFA diversity, equity, and inclusion certification, I made sure to say that because it's not only a job for the underrepresented. We want everybody to participate and feel welcome because you can also exclude the majority as well if you do it wrong, right? And then you're kind of defeating the purpose to some degree, right? From day one, we've always had members of our steering committee who are Caucasian. One of them was an older white man who he was like probably the last person that you would have thought would have been interested in this, willing to give their time and energy and support. He was from one of our largest firms and just had a lot of political capital that he was bringing to the table to really help us engage his peers in this fight. But I couldn't agree with you more. You can't have a diversity panel and have it all be guys that look all like us. (laughs) Right. (laughs) When you think about it, I think of allies, right? Like when we did see a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff start in 2020, uh, the summer of that. But what we did see a lot of too, is a lot of allies, people stepping out, like coming out and trying to, people that weren't from the underrepresented backgrounds or weren't minorities, were coming out and showing or saying what they wanted to do and how they wanted to help and actually putting some money where their mouth was, putting time where their mouth was, like stepping into it. And so, I mean, I think we've had 
a lot of, we've made some big strides here since 2020 and here we're in 2022 now. I think it largely in part because people wanted to do something. And I think 2020 served as a catalyst to get them to do something. And now with programs like what you're doing, Jeff over at NAFA in bringing the awareness, I said, now we can see the growth in this effort. And it's largely in part because people want to change and it has to do with the people that aren't minorities that are helping with the change. Right. And I think that we continue this. And I like how you said that, Luis, like we have to have them included. But when you think of it, DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion. So we can't exclude people if it's diversity, equity and inclusion. And I think as we continue to grow in with our diverse backgrounds and people that aren't with diverse backgrounds, I think it's going to only make things better inside of our industry. Yeah, I like the way you laid that out. One of the things that was strategic imperative for us was making sure that we provided a variety of ways for people to get involved. There are going to be some people that want to volunteer and be a member of a committee and really conceptualize some of the programs and services that we want to put out through our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. There's going to be other people that just, you know what, I just want to write a check. I want to make sure that there's an opportunity for someone to either begin their studies, continue their studies, engage in the association, whatever it is. That's how I'm going to do the work. There's other people that I want to sponsor an internship. I want to bring someone into my firm. Someone gave me a leg up and this is how I'm going to sponsor them to go through the process. So it's just about having a variety of ways for people to feel like they can get involved and help to move the needle in a meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. And we're certainly not mad if you just want to write a check. Absolutely. <laughs> that is important too. <laughs> By all means. Yeah. <laughs> Go to blxinternship.org. Click on the support button. <laughs> we'll take checks from you. We'll, we'll put those checks to use. We'll be diversity in action in them check. I love the fact that you laid out like the framework for saying, hey, there's many ways to get involved. Because one of the main questions we get from people is like, how can I help? Because sometimes, not that we have all the answers, but even when we started the program, lots of people reached out like, hey, we didn't even know what we needed help with at the time because this was all new to us as well. We had no idea this was going to grow into what it is today. And we were like, I honestly, I don't know yet. What do you get at? What do you think? You know? So yeah. And then eventually it was like, hey, well, listen, you could help spread the word. You could donate. You can get an intern yourself. You can come speak at one of the webinar series that we do for the interns during the summer. You know, so there's so many ways to get involved. So I appreciate you saying that because a lot of people may not necessarily know, but I feel like if your heart's in the right place, there's always a way that you can help us move that needle forward without doubt. So Jeff, on a personal level, what is some of like the best piece of advice that you received or your favorite personal finance tip concept or book that you ever read? Wow. I mean, honestly, when I started in this job, I didn't know financial planning from anything. And so I just spent a lot of time learning, talking to planners that work in different segments of the field, just really trying to understand what is the work that you all do and what's the benefit on the back end. And so I think the best tip that I heard was it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. Everybody can benefit from having a conversation with a financial planner. For some of us, it's just talking about how do you budget, cash flow, things of that nature. And for others, it's about really planning for retirement, preparing for some of those life transitions. But I'd say the number one tip is don't think that money is a barrier to you being able to talk with a financial planner. Everybody has that opportunity. There are planners that work with people on all levels of the income spectrum, especially within our community. And so really take advantage of your professional expertise, the time that they're willing to devote to you, because you're going to come out on the back in a much better place. Yeah. And that's one of the things that when I learned about, you know, I was in the industry for about 15 years before I heard the words fee only or even fiduciary came from the broker dealer world, where it was mostly based on working with clients first that had assets to invest. 
And then the planning came as part of that. So when I learned that you can work with clients, even if there's no money investing, I was like, wow, that's a pretty cool concept. And it actually makes sense because I felt like so many people get left out. And I think, unfortunately, the industry in general has done a bad job at communicating what a financial planner is. When you ask people, most of the time, people just think I sell insurance, you know, or that I work at a bank or something. And so you're so right. There's so many planners out there that work with every income level. Some people have specialties. That's another thing I've been seeing now compared to other industries like attorneys and doctors. A lot of financial planners are now focusing on people that have a specific set of circumstances like stock options or given specific professions. I'm very happy to see that progression in the industry and the ability for people to have more access to a financial planner, even if it's hourly, like you don't need to have this ton of money. You could just, like you said, right, have a conversation and you're going to be that much better for it. Even if you are not ready yet for doing ongoing planning, or even if you're not ready to start investing, just have that conversation initially. And you might learn a couple of things that you can immediately implement to just better your life. I think that's going to be probably the next frontier of our DEI work is just getting at some of those communities that have been historically underserved from a financial services perspective or served in, I don't want to say it's a bad way, but not served appropriately. I really do think that that's going to be the next thing on the horizon, but we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, there's some biases around money that come to the table when you start thinking about some of those communities. So really finding a way to tell the real story about what it means to engage with professionals like you guys. Absolutely. I think mindset is a big deal when we're talking about engaging with the community and then being able to have more messengers to get out to the communities, right? It's very important that the messengers match the community. And that's, I think, where we're starting to see things go and making financial advice more accessible, right? This is like one of the biggest things why we wanted to get BLX going is because we wanted to be able to provide a gateway for people to get into the industry to be able to help the communities that they come from. So many times when we would go talk to these advisors prior, we didn't feel like we had access to them. And I think largely in part uh, because it was the lack of representation. You look around and it's like, well, I can't talk to this person about my money because I don't think they're going to understand what I'm going through. And I think like just through life experience, whether it's your own family or friends or just people that you meet throughout life, like I've seen so many different financial situations. And just because someone didn't have assets, they weren't like when I came into the BD world too. So if you didn't have assets, we wouldn't even give you the advice. If you didn't have assets, we didn't even talk to you because we couldn't get compensated for that. And, right. There's no product to match the <laughs> solution. <laughs> like, so, you know, it's like, well, we'll get you this term policy and put you on a list so we can call you later because that's the cheapest thing we can sell you. And I think just the transition of people giving advice over products has been such, I think, like an eye-opening experience for me and changed the way that I look at clients and their ability to be good clients, right? The reason why I say ability to be good clients is because I had to look at it through a different lens. And when the lens changed for me, I was able to give so much more value and impact into the client's life because now we're talking about the day-to-day -day things. We're talking about what's going on with the kids. We're talking about what's going on with the family. We're talking about what's going on, how they feel about their money. Well, that's crazy. You want to know how I feel? Yeah, money is a very emotional thing and we need to get into this and talk about how you feel about these in particular things that are going on in your life. And people like, now I get a lot of people that say, you sound like a therapist. And I'm like, well, I'm <laughs> it's like, I, was like, yeah. I said, there's a whole organization, the Financial Therapy Association about that. So I said, this is real. Money trauma is real. And when you talk to people about those traumas and we've done such a good job conditioning people to just get to a product that sometimes they don't even know 
what they like. They don't even talk about those feelings. They don't talk about the money scripts. They don't talk about the mindset. They don't even know is just something that's just been ingrained in them. And so, I mean, I think getting more planners out there that can get in there and really have those relationships developed with their clients is going to change everything. I think that also is going to open the door for, and I'm going to hone in on race and ethnicity for just a second. I feel like in black and brown communities, there aren't enough conversations in families about money and about what it means for the future, how to save, how to plan for the future, things like that. I mean, my parents are upper middle class professionals. We didn't talk about money. We didn't talk about financial advice. I remember the first time my first job and there was a 401k offered. I was like, well, why would I want to put my money over there? I'm just going to keep it in my savings account, my checking account. I want ready access to it. And it's because I didn't have that socialization growing up. But I think as more and more members of those communities start working with planners, then they're going to start talking to their children. And that's just going to be a snowball effect. Yeah. What did you observe about money growing up? Like, I know how you just mentioned, like, you don't have a background into like, okay, this 401k, like, why should I put my money there? You have a, like a memory that kind of sticks out to you that kind of gave you a basis for how you felt about money growing up? I think it was probably, I was probably eight or nine. And my grandfather took me to the bank. He would go to the bank once a week walk in and see the teller. They all knew his name <laughs> and they helped me open my first savings account. I had the little passbook. Oh, um, I remember those yeah. passbook savings. <laughs> and we weren't talking big money. It was like maybe $10 a month that was going in there, but it was just a reminder that you always had to put something away. So if I put $10 in, he might let me spend a dollar. So I spent every summer down in central Virginia with him. And I'd start out the summer with like no money. But then my mom's like, how do you come home with like three, $400? Well, granddaddy gave me an allowance for every week for helping around the house. And he wouldn't let me spend it on junk. But it was just ingrained in me the importance of saving. Wow, that's so cool. I remember those passbook savings. There was no <laughs> statement, right? It looked like a passport and you just go right. and get that. <laughs> I'm showing my age now. <laughs> That's how I got my first bank account. My aunt took me to the bank. I remember that we went to B of A and she got me a passbook save. We had a little thing in there. And that's how I tracked all the money I was taking out. I wouldn't save it anything. I was <laughs> taking out everything. I was like, that's how I got like little things. And I remember like that passbook. That's so funny. I don't even know if they have, do they have those anymore? I don't even think I, they I have like that people see tellers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jeff, you brought me back some memories. I was thinking about, as you were saying that, I remember when I opened up my first bank account because I followed in the footsteps of my parents. When we came here from the Dominican Republic, they didn't have a bank account. You know, so the check cashing place was like the central place where you go cash a check, you pay the fee for it. They also gave you the ability to pay some bills there for a fee again. And I remember when I got my first like real job that I started getting my checks, I would do the same. I would get a paper check and walk over to the check cashing place and pay like $4 for the privilege of getting my money. Right. And then I just started talking to some other people They're like, oh, I just deposit mine in the bank. And this is before even direct deposit, like people still got physical checks, but then they walked over to the bank <laughs> and I was like, what's the difference? Right. And then I learned like, well, you're not paying any fees, right? Because you're just depositing your money in some banks. What I do would actually open up a bank account with the same bank that issued the check where the company I was working. So it was already good to go. I was able to like just get all the money in one shot and I have to pay a fee for it. And that's kind of how I started learning about just the basics of having a checking account. Because I didn't have the opportunity to learn about credit cards or anything like that growing up. Because my parents, Dominican immigrants, they didn't even know English. They, didn't, they never had anything like that, a credit card, none of that. So we had to end up showing them eventually. Once we learned and made a few mistakes, we won't get into that in this episode. 
I think like even just the banking, because we were talking about that. I've heard a lot of people talk about unbanked people and I started my finance career in the bank. So it was the check cashing at the liquor store was like, that was banking. Yeah. And it yeah. was like, get all your cash, you go get your, your money orders. Cause we're doing money orders. We weren't even doing cashier's checks. We we're doing like money orders. And I'm like, to me, to think that we couldn't write a check at the time or people didn't write checks. And to see how important it is to understand that concept of putting money in the bank. Like we think about it and you think about, I'm talking to you, Luis, and I know Madi's parents did. I seen my parents do it. I seen, you know what I mean? It's just what we did. And to think about this is one generation behind. Yeah. And we're talking about banking. We're not even talking about investments. We're not talking about yeah. insurance. We're just saying, just get a bank account so that you can use a debit card or a credit card and stuff like that. And I think that that is why we need more of us in the industry. That is why we need more diversity here. Because now thinking about that, like, and there's still people that are unbanked. 100%. Yep. Yep. And I'm like, how do we get that information out? And it has to come from us. It has to yeah. come from us. And you know what? I think there's a lot of your peers that feel unprepared to deal with circumstances like that, I think that's when we need to step back and say, you know what, this may not be in the wheelhouse of a financial planner and being able to steer those individuals to some of the resources that exist within the financial coaching community. Mm -hmm. I think AFCPE does a lot of great work preparing those coaches that either work with members of the military, work in community settings, extension, whatever it is, but just being able to help those individuals that are unbanked, unprepared to really understand the, the nuances of the decisions that they're making and not making. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important because you need to have that basis, right? And a lot of the times, yeah, it's even before you start talking about investing, thinking about, again, just cashing the checks. When you look at the mindset behind that, there was no opportunity to put any of your earnings away. It was just, you get all your money and then how do I spend this, right? Okay, I got some bills. And so that mindset sometimes travels through generations. And I've seen people that over the years, make more money and their lifestyle catches up to match their new level of income. And they're still living paycheck to paycheck, even though they're doing much better than they were five years ago, because now they have a nicer car and a bigger home, right? <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's one thing that now that I'm an adult, my dad and I talk about money frequently. And that was one of the things that he said to me when I took this job, he's like, this is going to be very different than the last role you're in. You've already established that you can live based on what you're making now. And you don't look like you're hurting. So don't immediately think that you need to like level up just because you have a little more access to some funds. Think about the things that you haven't been doing over the last few years and do those things. And that was a really important lesson. That is great advice. Yeah, we see that in our profession all the time. So a lot of the times we have to wear those many hats. <laughs> Not just be a, a financial planner, but sometimes I think, yeah, the whole behavioral side of it, it's another thing that is going to continue to grow because it's such an important part of it. You know, a lot of us just by default and having to do those kinds of things as financial advisors, but we didn't get training for that necessarily in like the curriculum to become a financial professional, right? So <laughs> definitely something that I'm going to personally be looking into further to get more training and certification in that area as well. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the things that I think is also going to be really important for this profession as it continues to mature is just continuing to embrace that pro bono ethos. It exists in medicine, it exists in law, it exists in the accounting world. But I know that a lot of planners are apprehensive about it because every day you're not having a conversation about someone with a lot of credit card debt. But that's what you're going to encounter if you walk into a community center or a house of worship and you're having a conversation with someone about financial issues. And we haven't done a great job 
as a community, making sure that you all are prepared to be able to have those types of conversations. There's some resources out there, but we haven't done a great job. So there's more work we can do. And that's another area where we're not competing. When it comes to pro bono, FPA can do it. CFP board can do their initiatives. The Foundation for Financial Planning is a great convener. But this is an area where it doesn't matter where you work, who you work for, what organization you belong to. There's always an opportunity for us to give back. Absolutely. You are bring up a great point too. Financial planners are not necessarily prepared for that role. And I think we need more resources in the industry for that as well. I recognize that for myself without a doubt. And you mentioned like houses of worship, for example. So I have clients that are very religious and they usually tie, say, 10%, right? And a lot of the times, I mean, I remember years ago when I was had a relationship with some of these individuals that I was like doing taxes and sometimes they would need some help with budgeting or something. That 10% was a non-negotiable. And I feel like there's a lot of times where you cannot just throw the textbook at a situation. And that's where we need somebody that's going to have that empathy and be able to recognize, okay, this is a value to the client. So yes, you know, maybe they're not going to put money in their 401k right now and they're doing 10% of the church, but that is a value of theirs, you know, and we can't just be like, oh, stop contributing and you'll be better off, right? We have to find a way that aligns with their values as well. Yeah. And I think that's one of those areas of like cultural competency that a lot of planners need to step back and kind of learn a little bit more about. And you've had experience with that. If you grew up in a religious family, you probably know that. But there's a lot of professionals out there that that's not a part of their reality. So when they see that situation, it's like, really, that's the decision that you're going to make when you're (laughs) confronted with these opportunities over here. But like Mm -hmm. I said, you have to meet the clients where they are. It's non-negotiable. I mean, I've heard heard P.D. Jake say that, which some people might not know who T.D. Jakes is, but (laughs) T.D. Jakes, Jakes was like talk, talking about that's the cultural confidence, right? Yep, um, yep. When you're thinking about that and you think about the tithing, I heard him say it. He said it best. And some people say, well, I can't afford to tithe. And he said, I can't afford not to. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not just that. It's you dealing don't. with maybe an immigrant family, mm-hmm. this idea of I have to send money back to yes. my relatives in yep. another country. That's huge mm-hmm. for a lot of people that are being yes. underserved right now. And I think just remembering that that's got to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. It's, I think like when you have those conversations or you have those relationships, my, I've seen it with my clients and it's just part of what we're doing. Like, okay, well, how much do we need to send? How often do we need to send it? All right, well, let's make it happen. It's a part of what we're doing. And I think to see the look on the client's face when you say that, because they may have met with a planner that didn't have the competence to be able to understand that this is important. This is one of the goals. Like this might be the number one, but this is why I'm here in the country. I need to get money back to take care of my family. Yes. Right. This is why I'm here. And when you have that and you say, okay, well, that's the goal. All right. How much do we want to send? And when we talk through it, like it changes the relationship. Mm -hmm. Now they trust you because you met them where they were at and you said, okay, let's figure this out. How are we going to get the money to them? How often we need to send it? How much it's going to impact what's going on here, but we're still going to do it. And I think when you do that more, it changes you as a planner. And why I'm saying that is because now you're dealing with real life stuff. Like this is real life. And we're impacting someone else's life in another country by helping our client be able to take care of them. This is empower- It's so powerful. And I think that when you sit in this seat as an advisor, you have to understand the impact that you have or can have positively and negatively on the clients by what you tell them. And- The way you just described that immediately taken back to the spring of 2013 when I was going through the interview process. And that's why I was so excited to work with this community. It's because of that opportunity to make an impact that this isn't just about 
selling products. It's not just about dollars and cents. It's about how are you going to help someone transform their life? It's so important. It's so impactful. And I think that's one of the things that when you talk to young people about why they want to get into financial planning, it's because they're starting to connect the dots and they understand that this is going to be the next great helping profession. It's not just about dollars and cents. Yeah, you said it beautifully. I was on the receiving end of that. My father came to the United States in 1987. My mother and the rest of my siblings, and one of six, they didn't start joining them until 1991. So for four years, my father was here in the U.S. working in a factory in Queens, and he had to send money back every single week because that's the only way we were able to survive back home. So when I work with people, that is one of their priorities. Like, oh, I'm sending money back to Mexico or Dominican Republic. Like, I know what you're talking about. We can't try to work around that. Like, that is a priority. And then we work with that included as part of the overall value system because we know what's behind it. Super important. What you said, Emlyn, about that changing you as an advisor as well, because you're so right. When you are uh, talking to people about their values, and that could be anything. It could be even in investing. If somebody wants to invest in like a socially responsible way based on their values, there are still some people that are not for it, right? Or they look at the client like they're crazy. Oh, why would you want to do that? Like you could get a better return here. And even if that was the case, that's not the point. <laughs> you have to be able to have that empathy and know that you're talking to a person on the other end, right? So it's not about the most efficient way to do something per the textbook, right? That this is real life, like you said, Emlyn. So super important for us as planners to be able to understand where the clients come from, meet them where they're at, and work with their value set in order to help them proceed in their lives. And the impact that you can help that person have in their own life to their families, their communities is amazing. So Jeff, what is a piece of advice that you would give someone who wants to get involved, take action, uh, help make the profession more diverse, inclusive? Um, what would you say? I think it's really just around examining the range of opportunities that are available to you. We talked about earlier, some people just maybe want to write a check, maybe sponsor an intern, uh, maybe bring an intern into their own firm. From where we were looking at the work that we were trying to do, we know that our audience use heavily to sole practitioners. And a lot of sole practitioners may never hire another advisor to work with them. So it wasn't just about jobs. So it's really just about understanding every way possible that you can make a difference and then trying to take advantage of something that aligns with your professional and personal values. So for me, it's about making sure that I'm available as a mentor and a coach to younger professionals. It's about connecting students that are interested in financial planning with planners like you all making sure that as an organization that we embrace the grassroots efforts like the, the BLX internship program. That was one of the reasons why I was so excited about it. It wasn't just the concept. It was the fact that you all brought a diverse group of planners to the table that had an idea about an issue that you all saw in this community. And I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't we support this? So uh, it's just really about supporting the work of others, uh, really trying to amplify your impact. And that's where I think a lot of people will be able to get involved in a meaningful way. Yeah, thank you. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking out the time. And again, thank you for all the support that NAPFA has provided to the BLX Internship Program. Again, if you ever need to move, man, just give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think there's definitely some more support on the horizon. Like I said, we always like to support the good work that NAPFA members are engaging in. And the timing was right. The issue was right. And so appreciate everything that you all are doing. I think this will be one of the things that people talk about for years to come. So definitely appreciate the impact that you all have made. Absolutely. And next time I'm in Chicago, I'm definitely going to hit you up. 
when we were talking right now, I was like, wait, hold on. I was in Chicago for, for a week. And I didn't even, I, it just, I, apologies. Apologies. We can't let this no, happen no, again. We're meeting real life next time. Take you out. But yeah, definitely. Nice. That works. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. We look forward to your continued impact that you're having. I know that the NAPFA Diversity Economic Inclusion Certification Program is getting like a facelift, right? So yeah, I'm going to go through that myself, even though I wrote one of the modules, right? but I still want to go through like <laughs> the entire formal program, you know, walk nice. the walk, right? Nice. I like it. <laughs> so um, like it. yeah, I look forward to when that's finalized and we'll obviously help push that out to via our newsletter and social media channels as well. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. And as always, if you have any questions or want to get involved, check out NAFA, NAFA.org and also blxinternship.org. And if you have any questions, send us an email at info at blxinternship.org. Thank you for listening to the Diversity in Action podcast. To learn more about the BLX Internship Program and sign up for our newsletter, please visit our website at blxinternship.org.